Welcome to the Love Examine playlist. We're solving love one song at a time. <laughs> Welcome back to the Love Examine podcast, everyone. Oh, la, uh, la, 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 la. Excellent. Good thing Avram's going to sound good because I'm going to sound like garbage because I have a bit of a cold. So we'll see how this goes. Um, okay, we're using each song in our playlist as a jumping off point to explore um, ideas around love, dating, marriage, and relationships. Um, so this week on our podcast, we are looking at the song Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division. Um, by the way, there's about a thousand covers of this song on Apple Music. Um, some because good, some not. <laughs> because because it's an uplifting. It is. People like those, people like those uplifting love so songs. So inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> it, but honestly, it's such a great song and it's so iconic. You know, the, the chorus of the song is so iconic. So it's so interesting to hear all these different iterations of it, whether like it's acoustic or kind of like I've heard a few techno versions. And it's really interesting to hear how people interpret it because it is such a broken hearted, iconic song. So Avram, why is this song on the playlist this week? Well, before we get into the, uh, the lyrics, I, I was just thinking about, you know, what, why do certain songs resonate with um, the, the culture? You know, like what, what is it about certain songs? There's something about this song, little things that stand out. Uh, for me, there's two things. One is the uh, hi-hat, that, that mm -hmm. syncopated, tick, 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 that, that carries it, which if actually when you watch the drummer from Joy Division uh, do that, I don't know how he keeps up that steady, it's almost like a drum machine type of thing, but that stands out for me um, as something that I, I don't think I've, I can't recall the last time I've ever heard in a song something so um, repetitive and meditative as that uh, hi-hat. Um, and of course, Peter Hook, who... Peter Hook's an interesting guy. He never really played bass the way he played bass. He had the keyboard to do the bass lines. Peter Hook played his bass like a lead guitar. All the melodies for Peter Hook songs, New Order and Joy Division, were like high up on the neck. So he would do these like melodic sort of phrases. And for anybody who's into bands like, um, well, so many Interpol or James Addiction, they, they copied that kind of bass player doing the, 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 um, the uh, the melody um, it's just lots of interesting musical little things about this song uh, love Ter will tear us apart that uh, yeah and I think I you know as we were talking about before they've just influenced so many modern bands that you can't deny you know it's like it's like listening to Bruno Mars <laughs> but not knowing what Sky is is like you know listening to music today and not knowing what Joy Division is they they really just had such a such a, a different sound for their time and, and built so many of the bands we hear today. Um, yeah. Yeah. So okay. Cool. So um, Love Will Tear Us Apart. Uh, so I picked this song and um, yeah, I, I was thinking, Ellie, when I was reading the lyrics to this song, uh, the, the lyrics I'm going to focus on, by the way, for today's podcast, I'm going to take the chorus. So Love Will Tear Us Apart comma again and I'm going to start with that and then I want to introduce two verses from the beginning of the song as a way it sounds very academic as a way <laughs> of um, providing a different perspective on I think where Curtis Ian Curtis the lead singer and composer of this song where I think he was trying to get to but I'm not sure I agree with him in terms of love will tear us apart but the two lines that I'm going to use are uh, and and uh, and ambitions are low 
when routine bites hard, but I've switched them because it's when routine bites hard and ambitions are low, I've switched them to help understand the chorus. So if all of this sounds very Kabbalistic, I hope it all comes together. And with your insights, we will leave people less confused than they are already. How does that We sound? hope. We hope. We'll try. We hope. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So first we have to go back uh, to a song that we spoke about. I don't, I don't know which episode it was, but we did Howard Jones' uh, song, What is Love? Mm-hmm. And Howard Jones has this line um, that I think is one of the better lines about love in pop music, which is, goes, uh, and maybe love is letting people be just what they want to be. The door always must be left unlocked. Uh, and we, if we juxtapose that with Ian Curtis's idea that love will tear us apart, it, very different approaches to an understanding of what love is. Uh, Curtis sees it as a destructive force, um, which is an interesting thing because I, I have a question for you, actually, Ellie. When you hear the chorus today, I mean, I don't know what you thought of when you were like 15 or 16, but when mm. you think of the chorus today, that love, love will tear us apart again. I just want to, I'm curious to hear from, from you. When you think about it, what, what do you think he means by, when you hear love, when he says love, love will tear us apart again, What's your sense of the kind of love that Curtis is talking about? Because I find it an odd choice of word of something that love would tear two people apart. Well, I think there's definitely a cultural like idea out there that like, you know, because I love you, that's what's destroying me. You know, whether it's because it's unrequited love or whether because these are two people who are so messed up that the fact that they love each other, it's just, you know, it's a destructive relationship or a toxic relationship to put it in like today's parlance. Um, You know, I think the line separated from the rest of the song, you know, speaks to love that isn't healthy. but I think it's, I'm not sure that's what he's saying in this song, although we're not trying to interpret what the songwriter said, we're just using it to stand on its own. But certainly this idea that, oh, you know, our relationship isn't healthy, so love is tearing us apart. Like the fact that I love you, even though you're not good for me, um, is like a whole thing that's out there today. Yeah, no, that, that's true. I was just thinking, by the way, as you were talking, I, I was thinking about, again, it, um, the same area in Britain, uh, a great film. If uh, if you're into the Sex Pistols, a great film called Sid and Nancy, mm-hmm. where Gary Oldman plays uh, Sid Vicious right. with Nancy Sputnik. Um, there's there's an example, uh, you know, of a relationship, which um, what, <laughs> what's that, that great Chris Rock joke about, he's like about, you know, pick your partners carefully. He's like, uh, 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 someone who wakes up in the morning says, I'm going to church and her partner says, I'm, I'm hitting the crack pipe because that relationship is going nowhere. He goes, but two crack, he goes, two people smoking crack that can last a long time. Right. <laughs> right? And right. there's something funny about that and true about that, that, right. that, and it, we've talked about this before that, you know, how we pick partners at similar levels of emotional maturity. There is something true about that, that my dysfunction and your dysfunction dance together, even though from an outsider's perspective, you know, our lives are absolutely chaotic and crazy, but there is some sort of dance we do. And in Sid and Nancy's case, completely destructive, obviously, right? right? But could it be any other way with two people like that? And so Kurt, I think Curtis is using, 
I think he, he, I think there's a different word that one could use, but like you said, we're going to use the lyrics that we have. And the lyrics that we have is Curtis saying, um, love will tear us apart again. But I think Howard Jones's idea that actually what love is, is letting people be what they want to be. And I was, Ellie, I was thinking about it this morning because, you know, some people, if they're listening to this uh, speak right now, they think, well, strangers do that to each other. Strangers let other strangers be who they want to be, right? Like you don't walk down the street and every time a stranger passes you, you give them advice about how to live their lives. Yes, I do. Right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, that would be, be enjoyable, but yeah. That would be funny, actually. That's, <laughs> that's my you know, that's my career. It's like, what's your, what's your face in a Charlie Brown? It's like in, invol cent? involuntary therapy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you you look like, sir, you look like you could use some advice today. Um, but but the idea that the idea here is, is somewhat... Um, analogous in terms of, uh, you know, how can you take that same sort of spirit with a stranger right? at, a, at a bus stop, a stranger tells you they're doing this and this with their lives, even though it seems crazy, you're curious and you're interested because it's right. not your family. Well, there, there is something beautiful about that, that when you're in the presence of someone that you love, that they give you enough space that they don't get fused to whatever it is your thoughts or feelings are about whatever that thing is, even if mm -hmm. they disagree with you, that they give you the space to be the person you need to become. And, and here's the key and stay connected to you and stay connected to you, which right. of course runs completely in the opposite direction, Elia, in this political environment of, you know, and I, I, I unfortunately, and I said this before, even colleagues of mine who encourage people in their own families to cut people out of their lives because of political differences. I I've heard, Right. I've heard clinicians say this. So right. Howard Jones' idea, right, this idea of let people be who they want to be, it's the most loving thing you can do to give them the freedom to flourish in this very brief moment we have on the planet Earth. It's just a lovely um, idea. But clearly Curtis is going, does not believe that. He's going in a different direction. So I, I'm actually quite excited about this because I think this touches on a few ideas we haven't um, really explored. So let's go to... Um, Let's go to Curtis's own words. So I'm flipping two lines um, around here. So it, the song starts off when routine bites hard and ambitions are low. And I so badly want to sing it because when you say it with his low voice, okay, when routine bites hard. Okay. So yeah, it's so great. It's so good. Okay. And it, okay. But we're going to flip it. And ambitions are low. Ambitions right. are low. Okay. So what is he, what are, when I think ambitions are low, Ellie, and again, I can't help but know the biography a little bit you know anybody who knows anything about Ian Curtis he struggled with epilepsy and seizures and depression so when he says ambitions are low I, I can't help but think that well he's talking about his own sense of a lack of a joie de vivre and and um, low energy and whatever however you encapsulate depression but I think any person experiences different levels of that where you just if you don't know what your life's about what am I doing what's my purpose I hate my job I don't know why you know what's special about me I don't feel connected to doing something in life I think everybody has that absolutely and again I know we didn't want to get to the biography but I just think it's important to note that um you know when he got married he got married very young to uh to Deborah Curtis I believe and they were 18 and 19 this is before Joy Division he was working for the government Curtis was working for like the UK government I believe the military even in a, in a very administrative capacity, which talk about a snooze fest. 
Okay. Yeah, I've worked, sure. I, I, some of my nonprofit work was for the government and God bless <laughs> everybody who does it, but I, you know, there's a lot of rules and regulations. And so I, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what he means by ambitions are low, but I, but Ellie, I want to talk about this in a different way. I want to talk about this as ambitions are low as a result of something that happens in all committed relationships. That's what I want to talk about. I think this might be what Curtis is referring to. Okay. So one of the things that, and we've talked about this before, one of the things that happens in the beginning of courtship in a relationship is that you, you're mapping someone on a date. Let's say it's date three or date four, right? And, and Ellie, you know how this works. You're sitting there having a coffee and you, you, you're just, you, you're, Dr. Bowen once said, you're, this is the best time to reveal self because you don't know how the person opposite you is going to react. So you're just throwing around stuff in excitement because assuming you like the person you're dating. So you're saying, and you know, I do this and I do that. And then what happens though, is you watch as you're sitting on this date and you see the person opposite you, their eyebrows go up or, or they go, oh, I, I don't agree with that. And because you so badly want this person to like you, you modulate your position with the person and you start self-correcting and self-censoring. You know, I don't know about you. I, I remember doing this on a date, like I, I, depending again on my level of how, how secure I felt in myself. If I felt less secure, I start, especially if I like the person opposite for me, I will start slowly becoming a chameleon and saying things that doesn't upset the person opposite me. Right. <clears throat> and the longer the relationship goes, it, it becomes much more explicit. This is where people point blank say out loud to each other, maybe let's say two months into a relationship, right? Um, I don't like traveling. So I just want you to know right now, please don't ask me to travel with you. And at the beginning, of course, you don't want to risk it. So you say, of course not. No, no. Like, um, I, I would never ask you to do that. And by the way, now that you're saying that, I'd like to ask you a few things that make me uncomfortable. And what people misunderstand is that they think that that trading of selves is a loving act. Meaning the more I say to you, I won't do this to make you upset. And the more you say that to me, it's not a beautiful thing. We care enough about each other that we don't want to hurt the other person. We don't want to make, I don't want to be, make you feel anxious. I don't want to make you feel nervous. And so I will modulate myself to a certain, to fit with you to lower anxiety. Okay. And this, this happens, this is true for all relationships uh, at the beginning. So what's going on here? You're investing a lot of your energy and anxiety at the beginning of a relationship on a few things. Number one, on accentuating agreement. So you're, you're sort of primed to sort of look for the things that you agree upon, right? And simultaneously, you're investing energy on avoiding or ignoring disagreement. And this is where when couples come into my office for premarital counseling, right? And I can sort of see that they have a different, a strong difference of opinion, for example, on when they want to have kids. And one of them will say something like, it's not a big deal, we'll figure this out later, which is fine to a degree, except for the fact that later is going to come at some point. And, and the idea, I think, for a lot of people is that it'll resolve on its own. But if someone is very clear about their position on something, it usually does not resolve on its own, especially when it relates to principles. So it's a dangerous game that young couples play, right? So, yeah. Right. But how does this track with what you were originally saying, which is giving people the space to be like wherever they are, like to be however they are? Do you see what I mean? Like if somebody says at the beginning, I don't like traveling and you're like, okay, cool, great. Got it. Um, are you saying that the other person is saying that just to make the other person feel more comfortable, but they themselves love to travel. 
And then how do you navigate that? Because on one hand, sure, you guys can state all of the things that you prefer in your life and prefer for yourself. And I'm trying to understand what the balance is between just being like, okay, that's great. You know, I'm going to completely accept everything about you and give you the space to be who you are in this relationship. Um, and if you each are doing that for each other, um, like that seems like it would work. But the problem is, I would assume things change and people grow. Okay, well, you're 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 now taking me to the end of the podcast, so we we'll, we'll get there. But I, <laughs> okay. I'm trying to I'm trying no, no. What to I'm trying to do, I'm trying to understand Ian Curtis's idea of level tears apart, and to understand where Curtis is coming from, we have to understand these two sentences. And ambitions are low, and when routine bites hard. So, could if we could just put okay. that because I, right. I agree with everything you're saying, but that's not what Curtis believes. I don't think. I don't think that's what Curtis believes. So I think it's important to understand what he's talking about, which led him to the conclusion that the relationship he had or, or the relationship anybody has, that the longer you're in love, it will rip you apart. But I, I think he, I, I don't, right. I don't agree with him, but let's just, so I, I agree with your premise and we'll get there, but let's just, let me just finish on this. Ambitions are low. So ambitions are low. Why are ambitions low at some point in a relationship? Because we've invested so much of our energy and time on the other, meaning that my, you know, Ellie, when you think about ambitions are high, I'll give you an example. Uh, you might've seen this, Ellie. I posted about this on Twitter and Facebook today. I do a journal every day. I do a sketch or I take a photo of my kids or my family and I, and I do a journal entry. I've been doing this since 2006 and it's it's really one could say my life's work. It's my it's my art project. It's an ongoing art project, right? And I print the journal out every year, and I get this hardcover book of my life. And my ambitions are high. I have a lot of ambition for this project. I love it. It's a labor of love. I don't get paid to do it. I, I don't get anything actually from this. But but it's it's a real love, uh, a labor of love. My ambitions are internally driven. They're towards a project for myself. Same thing with my kids. I love my kids, um, and a lot of what I do for my kids is a labor of love, and my ambitions are high. But if I spend my entire life, though, right, only focus on my kids, right, so all of my ambitions were my kids, what, what happens when they start struggling in school? I'm going to take it extremely personally because they're my life's project. See, if my kids start struggling and all of my life's ambitions are not internally directed, but externally directed, at some point, my ambitions are, are, are going to be low because they're fused to how my kids are doing well or not. Right. right? So you're saying even when you're dating, if you're in a, in a love relationship, that if all of your ambitions are around making this relationship work making your partner happy, everything being good, then suddenly when things say aren't good, then not only is that not a good experience in terms of the relationship, but you yourself have now like tied all of your good feelings to whether or not the relationship is okay. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's the old, we talked about this before, the old David Snarch idea, the late David Snarch, who, who talked about a reflected sense of self that I only know who I am in reference to looking at you. So let's say uh, uh, if I make supper for you, Ellie, right? I make supper for you, right? And all my energy isn't directed in making of the supper. Like I love cooking and, right. and just preparing the aesthetic of a nice meal, but actually it's just making you happy. It's making you happy. Well, if you come home 
and you eat and I see that you're just down and you're not enjoying it, right? My whole night's ruined. My whole night's ruined. And that just depletes someone of, of ambition. It just depletes you of energy because everything's precarious. It's always hinged upon my partner or my kid or my spouse or my sibling right. reflecting back to me that I'm worthy, I'm good. But what Ian Curtis is saying when he talks about amb ambitions are low, I think he doesn't get into so much detail, but my hunch is, because I see this in a lot of couples, is it's it's looking outside oneself, okay? and losing oneself in the other, which of course every love song talks about is a beautiful thing, but but I, I think in the end is is quite disastrous in terms of uh, where a relationship is, is going to head. So that's my understanding of am ambitions are low, that the ambitions are towards an another, and it, inevitably at some point that is going to be doomed to break down. Why? Because of illness and poverty and death and just life. I mean, just life that you, 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 you know, you... It's a very precarious position to hinge all of your meaning outside of yourself to, to something else, which is why people have such a hard time who invest all of their time in political parties, because they're going to break your heart. <laughs> like at some point, right. they're going to break your heart. Okay. Okay. So that's my understanding of and ambitions are low. And it's important to understand that. Okay. It's important to understand that to understand one other thing. And this is really, this is sort of a, a key thing that we discuss in the family systems world, which is why are some people prone to more clinical symptoms like depression and anxiety and other people are not, okay? One of the things, and Ellie, we talked about this at the beginning of the, before mm -hmm. we pressed record, you know, trying to understand symptoms, like where do they come from in this? It's complicated. It really is quite complicated. But one thing we do understand is that some people are more vulnerable to developing symptoms mm -hmm. okay when their meaning when their meaning is handed over so the agency for myself is towards you you get to decide how i'm doing as a human being i've handed right. it over to you to a certain degree okay and if you're upset right or if you're down or you're going through a tough time right the fusion between you and me means that i i am as well I, I am as well. And some people see that as love. Some people see that as that's beautiful because you are me and I am you and this, but that just creates this weird seesawing effect that whatever, however my partner is being right dictates my efforts, which is a very precarious position to be in. And if you do that chronically over 10, 15, 20 years, these are couples who will come into my office after 30 years of doing this, one or both people are going to be vulnerable to symptoms. This is what, Many of the family researchers understood with a, from a multi-generational process that it takes many generations for a symptom to develop. It just doesn't pop up on a Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m., sort of a chronic nature on anxiety or depression or however these, these symptoms manifest themselves. So this idea of sacrificing self for another chronically will make you susceptible to developing a symptom over time. Right? So curious if you have any thoughts before I get to the next line, because that's a very important point to understand when routine bites hard. Any ideas, thoughts? No, I, I, it sounds, I, look, it makes sense. If your locus of self-confidence is centered outside of yourself, then <clears throat> you will always be vulnerable because you can't control anything outside of yourself. So it seems that if you 
you know, if a person says the only way I'm okay is if everyone else around me is okay, um, you're just in for a rocky ride. And so that's, you know, of course, then the question becomes, so how do you move the locus from being outside of yourself to inside of yourself? And I think many people would say, I have no idea how to do that. Well, this is this is the whole, you know, um, in a few weeks, I'm going to be speaking at, um, I can never say the name, but it's some organization, the Canadian Yohutset, what's it called, Ellie? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, speaking the, yeah, a conference for premarital, it's going to be for couples uh, who are in the premarital phase for first year of marriage. And um, my, uh, my thesis is going to be, uh, there's two ways you can work on your marriage, you can do it in a proactive way where you can show up in my office in 30 years from now when the water under the bridge is so pronounced that the symptoms, now we're going back to symptoms again, are forcing you into my office. And while I look, my bread and butter, I make a nice living out of people coming to my office because things have chronically become so um, uh, pronounced. So I I mean, I'm glad to provide that service to people. However, if you ask me clinically what I would prefer, a much more robust premarital work that people do the work before and not wait until the symptoms uh, come up. Okay, so we have this idea, I've, I've set forth this idea of um, uh, the ambition thing. Now we get to the, the, this beautiful line, I think, um, uh, this idea of when routine bites hard. First of all, what a great phrase, you know, when mm-hmm. routine bites, like it has teeth, when mm-hmm. it bites hard. And I think that's true. You know, what is what does that mean in a relationship when routine bites hard? I envision a couple who go to the same restaurant. They've been going to the same restaurant every Wednesday because that's what they do. They order the same thing and they're both on their phones and they sit there. They have nothing to say to each other, but they do do the same thing every week for 40 years. You know, routine bites hard. It, it just takes a bite. And, and when you think about bite, right, it's painful. This isn't painful. It's, it's a death by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. sort of a thing. And this is true for all marriage. Anybody who's been married, I would say, for longer than three years understands this idea of routine bites hard. Okay. So the routine bites hard in my way of, of understanding. You see, I think Curtis thinks that it's a fait complete, like that, that's what happens in all relationships. Routine bites hard. Okay. But I don't think that's necessarily so, which comes back to your original point is what do people do? Okay? We'll get to that. So routine bites hard. So this, this idea of routine bites heart, I think, is because people in a relationship have sacrificed themselves for the other for so long to keep things the same that routine settles in. And what's the routine? It's an implicit agreement that I'm never going to make you upset and you're going to never make me upset. And the only guarantee when people do that is people are going to be bloody upset. <laughs> so that's, that's the counterintuitive thing here is that... Right. that out of love, I'm not going to ever say anything to Elliot that's going to upset you, right? To my spouse. I am never, I won't do any of these things to upset you because I love you. And if people love each other, they would never do anything to increase anxiety. And you do the same for me. That literally is setting the stage for routine biting hard because what do we have left on the palate to talk about? The things that are safe. And what do we know about dealing with a life that's very, very safe? It's pretty bloody boring. And routine sets in and it bites hard. And here's the counterintuitive thing. What happens when routine goes on too long? I don't know about you, Ellie, for myself, right? I get itchy. I develop symptoms, not right away, but little things. 
you know, my, my disposition, Ellie, I don't know about yours, my general disposition is anxiety, not depression. So if you think of a, a, a if you think of a continuum, people generally fall on one side of the continuum. I don't find that one week someone has panic attacks, the next week people have clinical depression, I, bipolar disorder is a different thing, but generally people fall in a on a certain continuum, I happen to be on the more anxious uh, disposition. And I have, thankfully, because of my training and other things, I have been able to notice that when routine kicks in too much for me out of anxiety, so I start doing the same thing over and over out of almost an anxious response, right? I will start to get anxious. And that's a tell. That's a tell for me that I'm playing it too safe in, in all areas of my life, mm -hmm. right? And if I let it go on too long, my body will offer up another symptom like maybe uh, trouble falling asleep. Right. And if I ignore it, it's going to become more pronounced. And there have been times in my life where it's, I've had to have a two by four driven across my head to wake up out of the slumber. Okay. But Curtis doesn't go anywhere else except for the fact to say, well, this is what it is. This is it. I mean, this is as good as it's going to get, right? The routine bites hard. Okay. And if you don't understand what's happening, it's pretty bloody depressing. Like if all you think is this is as good as it's going to get, like this is it, right? Ambitions run low, routine bites hard. Yeah, please. Although what he says then is love will tear us apart. You know, like he actually well, hold on. Is, You're skipping. He isn't saying like this is it. This is as good as it gets. You know, he the next line is is saying where that's going. Well, well, and which is essentially my thesis of the whole song, which is that the end result of this is if you don't have a roadmap for a relationship for your marriage, which is what I've always, Ellie, thought of for me, what I hope to offer my clients and particularly my young clients, the young couples, is that if you don't have a map for your relationship, and I don't even care what the map is, uh, Jesus, I believe in Jesus will show, great, as long as you have a map that will help you go through the turbulent times that there's a North Star, you have a lighthouse through that fog, you know where you're going. But if you don't, and, and your only map is to double down, right, on pleasing my partner, because that's what love is, right, my, my, is to look outside myself, right, and my responsibility is towards another, right, you're going to sink. There's no lighthouse in that. You're just going to get lost in the fog of sacrificing self for each other. And our culture really reinforces that in, in, uh, in different ways. But there's one other thing here, and it's subtle. And I, I, really, I really wanted to bring this up in this podcast, Ellie. And this idea when Curtis says, and resentment rides high. And resentment rides high. Okay? Because you can kind of picture the relationship, right? You can almost see the arc that Curtis is painting right? You start off the relationship, right? Um, ambition runs low. What is that? At the beginning, you do have ambition, but yeah, you know, you, you, you cater to your partner and this, and ambition just seeps out. And after three, four years, you get bored of that, right? And then routine settles in and it bites hard. But then Curtis is brilliant. He brings in this line because routine doesn't only keep biting hard. What happens? Resentment rides high. I see this in my office, Ellie. I see this in my office. This is where a couple will come in and you can see one or both, they are seething toward, they're, they're gritting their teeth and you'll hear them say that they will pull punches. Couples will come into my office and go, they will say this, Ellie, I have sacrificed my entire life for you and this is the bull bleep I get. This is what I get after 20 years of catering and they will say it. it it's not even esoteric. They will say, yeah. when I first met you, I didn't go to... I didn't go to school. I supported you through all the, and this is, and this is where Curtis's brilliance comes in because it doesn't stop at routine, bites hard. It exacerbates to 
and I sacrificed the best years of my life for you. And, and then there's sort of this existential moment of panic, which is that I'll never get those years back. I'll never get those years back. I thought there was a quid pro quo. I'm going to invest in you and we're going to reap the whirlwinds. But Right, or you know, I'm going Ellie- to sacrifice for you, which by the way is a personal choice. And somehow that will pay off in the end. You, you know, Ellie, where, by the way, there's been some good studies about this. You know where you see this? You see this where, let's say you have a sibling who's chronically ill with something. It doesn't make a difference. So, so at three years old, God forbid, uh, uh, one sibling is diagnosed with a, it's a chronic illness though. And all the family energy and resources goes to that, that, that kid, which makes sense, right? They're going to the hospital. They're, they're getting therapists, an occupational therapist, and everything's going towards that kid. And their sibling who's healthy is told, you got to help out for your, come on, you know, your brother's going through a really tough time. You, you got to support them. And you do, right? Because you worry about your, kid and you're you're eight and and you do because your parents are asking you you know what happened i I see these relationships you know what happens when they're 25 and 23 the sick kid who now maybe is finding their own and they're getting on with their lives the 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 one who was healthy who sacrificed so much of their lives right realizes that they don't they're not needed anymore in any way and they sacrifice the better part of their lives to cater to their ill sibling and they start to resent them and the resentment goes both it's reciprocal the sick one will look at the with the sibling they'll go for a coffee and say you know i'm not sick anymore and by the way all of you're like taking care of me it it was a huge cross to bear meaning that i don't want that from you anymore and the person who was sacrificing is like you ungrateful sob do you know how and then you have these two and i i have siblings in my office like this ellie they're in their 30s it's usually 20s or 30s and there's this seething resentment. So this is where Curtis's brilliance kicks in because this idea that the love at the beginning of, of the, the connection, it becomes um, uh, um, not gangrenous, uh, like there's a gangrene that settles in. It's like this emotional rigor mortis settles in and resentment comes out. And that's where Ellie people can be pretty cruel to each other at this point. Because when you wake up after 25 years and realize I pissed away 25 years taking care of you. And now you look at me and you're not grateful for it and not saying that, you know, you thank you, thank you, but it's the opposite. You're actually angry with me. You're upset with me. So Curtis's understanding is very deep. He just doesn't provide, he provides you with a true joy division bleakness of, and that's love. And that's Ellie where I disagree with him because when he says love tears us apart, I don't believe that's true. I think what Curtis understood is that if you keep biting down on routine and doing things the way you always do without a roadmap, right? That's what tears you apart. That's what tears you apart. It's the fusion of two people doubling down on doing something that isn't working that rips people apart. Not love, not love. But I think culturally we understand that to be love. The idea that I'm going to sacrifice everything for you and you'll sacrifice everything for me. And it's like this symbiotic sort of um, uh, thing here. And it's right. the very thing that just robs us of vitality and ambition. So I think Curtis diagnoses it right. I think, I think his depth, and very young too, he wrote this when he was like 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. The depth of his understanding of how couples get stuck is, is uh, uh, very well stated. It's just 
he, he was a pretty bleak guy and and i think his conclusions are wrong um but um anyways it, th it that's makes me think that like it makes me wonder like how many people actually know what love looks like because if we're basing our understanding of love on what our parents looked like or on what our family looks like and that's either immature or unhealthy and it is more this model that you're saying like where would people look to see role models of what like love not burdened by um unresolved business would look like so to them that is what love looks like love looks like my parents marriage which is you know riding high with resentment and low on ambition and you know and, and it's biting hard so i think it's very difficult for people to imagine something different because we rarely see it right and it's and we're stuck so so where can we look do you are there places where you have seen an example of what love looks like when it's not like that first of all i mean i think you know let's take for example i've never seen mars i've never seen sat i've seen pictures of mars and saturn and the moon but i've never been there i i wouldn't know how to get there i don't it's almost it's so impossible i really don't give any thought to it but then there's a guy like elon musk who has dead who, who dedicated he doesn't have to do this but for whatever reason his curiosity or his creativity his um, his entrepreneurship has dedicated all of his time and energy to finding ways to travel to space meaning that there are people in the world right now that for whatever reason ellie they just there's something internal to them that they are in a quest to discover the thing that is different from what we have seen previously. They're right. just out there, right? And they inspire us. If everybody was doing what Musk did, it wasn't. It wouldn't be inspiring. But he, he does this thing and and inspire and it pulls us to imagine more possibilities, right? Than just watching Netflix all day. It right. does. I, I find it inspiring. Well, I think the same thing is true with respect to relationships. So you, you're absolutely correct most of the cultural messages and what we saw growing up very much resides in what Curtis said. But then every now and then someone comes along like Esther Perel. And mm -hmm. Esther Perel is touching a nerve right now culturally, right? I mean, every client I speak to, women in particular, if I mention Esther Perel's book, they go, oh yeah, 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 I read, I read Mating in Captivity. And Perel talks about everything we everything Curtis talked about here, her whole book, Mating in Captivity, is about exactly what Curtis is talking about. How do you... What happens when you meet someone and you dedicate all your time into fostering a friendship, security, safety, togetherness, monogamy, right? What happens when you do that over 15 years? You're going to lose the danger and the, the this, this sweet je ne sais quoi of, of novelty of what happened in the beginning. And something gets lost in the process. And her book's a meditation on how do you bring, how do you get both, Right. And right. her message is it's hard. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. So so when you say that, you know, um, like what are people to do? I, I think it's well, I'm not calling you disingenuous, but I'm saying I don't think it's true that no one is doing anything. I try to do my part in the work that I do. And right. I, I hope that my clients who work with me are um, um, learn a different way of thinking about gridlock in their relationships. Esther Perel does. You know, I don't agree everything with John Gottman, but he's doing his work in the marriage, the sex therapy world to provide a different way of thinking. The late David Snarch did, you know, so I, I think there are people out there and our podcast, Ellie, I, I hope that people listen to our podcast are doing, you know, are, are getting the same thing. So th that's what, what I would say. There are people out there who are providing a different 
framework for understanding uh, for understanding uh, these things. And um, right. And so we kind of have to build our own model in a way, like use the the information that's out there, use the systems that are out there, um, and look for good ways to do the work. But then we have to build our own model because if we don't see it outside of ourselves, then we have to look within and do the work to figure out, well, what would my relationship look like if I, if each of us was mature and working on ourselves and that's going to be unique to us and to, you know, to what that relationship is. Well, the number one thing I tell when people ask me, you know, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing I could do to have whatever a successful relationship or something? My my answer every single time is find a robust theory right. to provide you with a roadmap to understand the nature and the rhythm of what relationships are. It, Ellie, by the way, in a similar way, we've talked about this. <clears throat> if someone says, I want a deep spiritual life, mm -hmm. right? Well, then you're, you're going to have to grow beyond your grade three conception of God. Mm -hmm. old man in the sky, right. big beard with a big book, right? You're going to have to, you're going to have to cultivate a different palette, a more mature palette. Well, if you, if you want the same thing in a relationship, you're going to have to grow beyond your grade eight sex ed class or whatever you talk about or whatever love songs you've been, you've been listening to. You're going to have to grow that palette. And so I, I would and say every, before, yeah. And every real practice eventually gets to that. Like I remember with the dance um, when I was in the dance company, um, uh, the head of the dance company saying, uh, do the technique because you can't rely on inspiration, right? You, if, if you're feeling deeply uninspired one day, but you still have to get on stage and perform, if you've done the technique, the technique will carry you through the performance. Is it the same, like, you know, incredible experience? No, but it still allows you to do what needs to be done until your next sort of bout of inspiration um and interestingly enough this week i also saw this like in terms of uh in terms of judaism when we talk about leaving egypt with all these sparks and you know big signs and wonders and miracles but then the thing is like okay now we're on the other side of the red sea now we got to figure out how to live our lives and it's not going to be miracles and it's not going to be like wham bam huge experiences it's going to be the daily life of relationship and what does that look like? And so I think that's interesting what you're saying, because I would say every practice that I've looked to eventually get to this idea that you cannot build a life on um, fireworks. It has to be built, you know, the fireworks are great, but you have to build it on something else. So it's interesting what you're saying about find a good theory um, that would seem to bear out in other practices as well. I mean, I think I, I just think it's the most important thing. I I could tell you for me, and I've doc, I, you know, my first book is, is documenting my struggles with a, with a commitment and and relationship. Um, uh, the difference between me, I don't know for sure. I, I I've asked my parents, but I'm just going up what I've observed. Generally, what I saw growing up, not just amongst my parents, their friends and other relatives, when relationships problems kicked in, at least in my family, the general orientation was towards other, meaning that you're doing something to me and this isn't fair. And that's kind right. of what I grew up. And it made sense to me. Like that really does make sense to me. If, if, if I'm struggling with something in a relationship, I mean, people could actually really be doing something selfish yeah. or mean or whatever. You, you, you look outside yourself and go, why would you do that to me if you loved me or if you cared about me or something? Right. So that's what I grew up with. When I discovered family systems theory at McGill University, 
And it had a completely different orientation that we co-create, that there's reciprocity in all of our problems and that we are responsible passively or proactively for the problems in our lives. It just completely changed my frame of reference when I'm struggling. So when I was going through some very challenging times, you know, I mentioned this many times in our podcast when Elise and I, when, when I ended our engagement, and then we got back together a couple of days later. But when I ended my engagement, it was family systems theory that provided me with a roadmap to go back into the relationship. If I didn't have a robust theory, right. I would have walked away from it. And like silence of the lambs, my blood pressure wouldn't have even gone up because I knew how to leave relationships. I was an expert at that. Mm-hmm. It was family systems theory that, that had me get quiet and go, what is my part in wanting to run away from this so quickly as opposed to what is my partner not do oh of course she's not the right fit for me all all that kind of stuff so i really 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 encourage people if you want to have better luck than other people in this sometimes not very easy thing about committing to one person for the rest of your lives if that's what you want invest the time to find yourself a robust theory to provide a roadmap uh to help you so Anyways, those are my thoughts about Love Will Tear Us Apart and um, great song. That was fun. Yeah, really fun. Thank you so much, Avram. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, As always, this is the Love Examine uh, Playlist Podcast. If you want to hear the songs that are on the show or see a sneak peek at what's coming up, check check out the Love Examine Playlist on Spotify and Apple Music. If you have a song that you think we absolutely have to talk about, please send us a voice message or an email. The link is in the liner notes and let us know why you think the song should be on the playlist or what your story is behind it. And we'll include your message and song on the show. Um, If you have any questions or a topic you think we should cover, please get in touch with us. Um, Thanks again, Avram. A lot of fun. Um, See everyone next week.